you're in the interview with Reviews and Done. Peace and blessings, world, and welcome to another interview with Reviews and Done. My guest today may be known for his work in Drew Hill. However, Mr. Nokio is a very accomplished producer who's experimented with hip-hop, R&B, and rock. So we're getting into all of that. So everyone, welcome to the line. The very talented Mr. Nokio from Drew Hill. How you doing today, sir? Great, man. Can no complaints over here enjoying the sunshine, man. How about you? I'm blessed, brother. Again, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk to me. Looking forward to getting to your work with Drew Hill, as well as your work with Black Angel Down and the hip-hop stuff you you know had a hand in from my college and high school years. So let's just get right into it. So February, February 2020, Drew Hill made an unsung experience and explained how the group got its start. And folks from the DMV area know all about the fudgery and Baltimore's Inner Harbor. I also know that Jodeci was a big influence on the group growing up. Who are some of the other artists you listened to growing up? Oh, man. Uh, it's so, it's such a wide range. I, yeah, I can say that my earliest influences, you know, just as far as like seeing vinyl albums in the house were Prince and Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. And it grew from there in the 80s to early the the big hair bands like White Snake and Poison and bands like that, Twisted Sister, all kinds of stuff. Because we had a station here, V103, that had a show called VTV. And I mean, like when VTV came on on Saturdays, it was like you could see everything from Bill Collins to Tribe Called Quest or whatever else. So I've always had a wide range as far as like influences because I just love music. Whatever I can connect to emotionally or just from a simple feeling, I try to find something within it that I can use, whether it's in my life or just in making music. So as a music fan, are you surprised that vinyl made a comeback in the last couple of years? I'm not. And what's crazy is I, I, I had a friend of mine, Jason uh, Bishop, here in Baltimore, who actually came to the rock band and wanted to do a vinyl release of our initial album. And just being somebody that loves rock music, but also knows how hard it is to move from one genre to another, I was really surprised that he enjoyed the music enough to want to do something like that. So he explained to me during that time just the jump in the people that were buying vinyl as opposed to everything else. And it was just a cool thing to be a part of kind of like the foundation of what music was for me. But within the time now to be able to take an album that I made and have someone wanting to be interested in putting out a vinyl version of it for people who love vinyl and just the sound that you get from it. It was like a really cool thing because that hadn't really happened within doing R&B. I can recall uh, when I used to DJ, I DJ with um, CDs and I would always Mm -hmm. expect somebody who carried vinyl around just knowing how heavy that shit was. 
And I'm like, anybody vinyl is my full respect to this day. That's a DJ because I can imagine trying to find a song, you know, going through the crates and having to carry all that shit around without any help. So I always give vinyl DJs their respect for rocking my vinyl. Man, I'm gonna tell you, early on, I had a girlfriend. She was born in '99, 2000, 2001, and she's a she's a fairly famous DJ, and as famous as I was also, I used to carry her crates into the clubs where she would DJ because I love music that much. And I appreciated that during that time when people were making the switch for her, it was still, I need to play these records. So I I just love music, man. And any way I can get in, I just get in where I fit in. Respect. So how did your stage name Nokio? Well, initially it was it was Nokio as shorter version of Pinocchio because growing up I grew up in the inner city in Baltimore and you know, as in most inner cities you have a lot of stuff that happened and a lot of times I would experience more than the average person that I knew. So I would have these stories that I guess the other guys couldn't really look at as being as true as they were initially because it's not something that they were used to. So when I realized that the whole Pinocchio thing was coming about, I said, all right, well, I need something that's going to relate more to who I am. So it started out as a Baltimore thing is N-O-K-I-Y-O because yo is like, it's used around different places, but that's just like a, that's a Baltimore word. It's part of our dialect. So from there, I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to make an acronym. So it became nasty for the N, on key for the OK, and inactive for the IO. And just the real quick thing, nasty for obvious reasons that women have said across the world. And then the OK, because I would um, usually like start out the writing the songs and things like that along with Woody. And then the inactive because I naturally have a baritone second tenor voice, but I could also sing in my falsetto. So, you know, I just wanted to add something that was creative that would be a conversation piece as opposed to something that people created for no reason. Cool. So you mentioned Baltimore, you know, I'm right outside D.C. in North Virginia. Our area, we got the go-go. Baltimore was known for Baltimore House, Baltimore club music. So growing yeah, up, who was the spot for Baltimore club music that you used to frequent? Oh, man. Well, I mean, just automatically, I got to say Hammerjack. My man. Like, you know, Hammerjack, Frank Ski. It was, and it, but the crazy thing was that I was into the music, but I never liked the environment. So when I would go to Hammerjack, if anybody knows Hammerjacks, it was a speaker as soon as you walked in the door. And I will always stay right on that speaker or near that speaker with security or whatever, because I knew that it was a certain time around 12 o'clock that certain elements would come in and you just didn't know what was going to happen. So as much as I love the music, I was always cognizant of the fact that I might be in a hostile environment. So I would go as long as I could go, and then I'd make sure I had my way out real fast. 
Yeah, and Baltimore, I mean, it's it's all, you know, it's all the same thing, D.C. Maryland Dreams. You know, Baltimore is a different type of uh, vibe sometimes. Oh, yeah. I can remember my stepdad was from Baltimore back in the day, and at the time we were living down in Newport News, Virginia, so we would drive up here to Baltimore to come see his family, and it was just, from what I saw with Baltimore as a kid, I really didn't see the rough side of Baltimore because he never took me there, but the older you get, it's like, yeah, Baltimore is, it's his own culture, I'll say that. But I mean, Baltimore oh, yeah, no, is great I mean, oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I can remember my cousin lived in Frederick, Maryland. So he was heavy in the go-go. So we would go to the go-go's, and I can remember many a night of the go-go ending early because somebody started a fight. We had to call my uncle to come pick us up, and he ain't know that that was the time he was going to have to come get us. So, I mean, it, it, it's definitely, you know, it was something about that go. I mean, and I, I always it was something about that go-go music that, like, as soon as you walked in the door, you had an extra level of energy, and then that energy could go either way. It could go whatever way it was going to go. So the same way we had in Baltimore, like, you go back to, like, club music with, like, Miss Tony, where we had, your guns up and shouting out all the neighborhoods. It was the same thing with Go-Go. And it was, it was just, I mean, it was an exciting time, but at the same time, it would be like, man, I don't know how many more of these I could do if it's not going to make it all the way through. If I got worried about somebody getting into a fight every time I show up, just because of the music. You know, I was too young to understand everything that was going on. It was just like, I go to Baltimore, like you said, I go to Hammer Jacks, you know, Paradox, whatever it is. It's a fight because of whatever. And I go out to Frederick, and then we go to D.C. or whatever, and it would be the same thing with go-go music. So you just learn to know when to go. No doubt. So let's jump into the Blue Hill stuff. The first time I can recall seeing you on screen was the 96 Tell Me video from the Eddie soundtrack. Now, brother, you guys perfected that jumping choreography. First time I saw you guys drive back in 2008, it was the weekend that Barack was going to you know, become the president, the weekend before that. And you guys opened up for the heads of state at Constitution Hall in D.C. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> Mind you, as soon as you hear that, that opening drum on Tell Me, you, you got to jump. Man, my wife gave me a sign. She was like, man, sit your ass down. Drew Hill can only do that, not you. So I had to just, you know, <laughs> not sit off the and go from there. So whose idea was it to do the jumping choreography? Well, man, I'm going to tell you, it was like we were in rehearsal and uh, with our management, uh, Kevin Peck, and, and at the time, and uh, my man Marvin McIntyre, who worked with everybody from New Edition to Keith Sweat all the way down. And it started out as like a joke because we were listening to the song and we were doing like the deacon walk. And anybody that's been to church with, that has shown us deacons knows the deacon walking. So it's kind of like you're on your tiptoes, but like you ain't jumping, but that, that hill is in the air and you're walking real slow. So it started out as that. And then it, it evolved real quick into the like, all right, well, what if we jump? And the rest is history. Honestly, it was, it was a real organic, Thing that I don't even think that going back to that time, we realized how much it would be created to, or like it would be a part of the song. I think that because of the way that we came up, we were just used to doing things that made people remember 
whenever we sang. So with the cadence of the song and the, and the organ courtesy of my man Stanley Brown, it was just kind of like, how do you work your way around that because it's so prevalent? And we just found a way to just mesh it all together and the rest is history. Yeah, you got respect to that shit, man. Like, I've tried many times and failed many times, but shout out to Drew Hill. You know what it shout is? You know what? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you where most people mess up with the step. It's really about your tiptoes as more than it is about just a flat jump because you got, you got to get, you got to get up. I mean, even going as, as far as just recently, it's like, we would still kind of be looking at each other on stage trying to see who could jump the highest because it was just it was just a thing, for real. And most people like play ball and stuff like that. When you buy those shoes and stuff that kind of prep your heels and everything, it's about your tiptoes. It's not about like a flat foot and jump, jumping up. So, you know, a lot of people would try to do it and think it was for this one thing, but it's really it, it's really like a serious thing to be able to get that jump the way it is and, and move up and down and still be able to sing. And that's another thing that they taught us. Once we came up with the step, it was like, well, how do you do that step and still be able to sing without sounding like every time you jump, it's an interruption. So it, it was a lot that went into that, man. They they had us singing and jumping and singing the song, doing push-ups and running around Central Park. It was a lot that went to being able to do that and still be able to sing the song like it was made. Yeah, I tried to tip toes then next time. So keep up the first Drew Hill album. In my opinion, it's a classic debut. And the first four singles alone still resonate 24 years later. Was there a particular song from the first album you wish was a single? If I had to look back now, I think that with the way that the group was presented by the label, it would have been really cool to have All Alone as a single. And I only say that because from the beginning, the record company pushed us as a group, but they also pushed us as individuals. And just going through songs that Bruce has done, that was one of the first songs that we did that really showcased everybody and showcased everybody in their best light as far as whatever tones that we could sing in and everything and just bring that along with a with a story of things that are rarely written about. You know, I wish that like we got to do all alone one time and and I see it every once in a while, every couple of years where Somebody had posted a video from where we did it on 106 and Park, and we all got there. It was one of the first times that everybody got to see all of us sing individually. But if I had to pick anything, I would definitely say I would definitely say all along. Yeah, my joint, I was my joint. I wanted to see the single was probably the cover of Love's Train or so special. I mean, that, that entire album, though, bro. Uh, you know what? I give you, I give you that too. I can't even argue with you. Can't yeah, argue that with entire you. album was just fire. We did not want to sing that song. Not that we didn't know it, but when we were playing the demo, we were so used to a certain thing, and the demo was real flat. So Keith's music director at the time, my man Grip, 
he was like, well, if y'all want, I ain't going to do the, the whole imitation that I've become famous for. And we do that another time. But basically, my man Grip was like, because Grip used to stutter, and I just don't feel like that right now. It was just like, but Grip was like, if y'all want to sing this song, fuck it. Because when we was young, we were like, we don't want to sing this shit. So Keith came to the studio, right? Now I do Keith imitation because I've grown things. He was like, <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. Like, once y'all sell about three million, y'all talk about what y'all don't want to sing. But, you know, until you do that, you know, y'all need to sing this song. And it was just like, you know what? You're probably right. And I think me and Jazz went in and did that all night and see. And we had been taught early on through our production company, how to sing like each other. So it just became this, like, fun thing, for real, as opposed to what we had in our head. That's so special. That's a whole other kind of special because I was able to produce that song with my man, Daryl Pearson, who, for people don't know, that don't know, he was part of the Swing Mob, and he was one of the guys, along with Stevie J, that helped create and mold that Jodeci sound. Stevie J... And Daryl were both phenomenal, and still are phenomenal, multi-instrumentalists and uh, everything. So not taking nothing away from Devontae, because I, when I met him, he played one of the greatest songs that never came out in life on the piano. But they were an integral part of creating that sound. So being able to work with Daryl on our first album and being such fans of Jodeci, and he took me to, when we did So Special, he took me to Rochester where they had done the show, the after party in the hotel. And all of Devontae's equipment was still in there and everything. So just to be able to kind of have as much as I could have a glimpse of what went into making the album and then being able to work on the same equipment was like, I mean, how can you be? I mean, I don't really know too many people who could say, especially with, how we've been looked at as far as our extension from after Jodeci to be able to really be that close to what was going on with him. It was like, it, it tripped me. It still trips me out now for real. Like as much as we love Jodeci, I got to learn the foundation of what I do as production from somebody that was that close to all of those projects. No doubt. So that production brother, Let's go back to one of your early joints you did with another artist. If You Died, I Wouldn't Cry Because You Never Loved Me Anyway, co-written with your man Jazz for Maya's debut album. Oh, not even Jazz. Well, not only Jazz, but I co-wrote that song with my man that um, wrote, uh, co-wrote In My Bed, Raphael Brown. So it was kind of like, that song was done kind of like right after we finished our first album and another Black History moment. A lot of people, most people don't know that In My Beard was the song that shot the round, around and 112 had that song first and they didn't want to do it. So when we got the song, you know, as the famous story goes, this whole didn't really want to do it. But we went in and it was such an impact that we made with Daryl Simmons that it was, it was just hard to deny even with me as being able to produce the songs and as many songs I did on my first album, it was hard to deny that that song right there was one of the ones that was going to take us to where we needed to be. Totally, totally agree. 
So with your production is going, you're becoming that dude in the industry from your production standpoint. On the second Drew Hill album, you made some monsters with that joint. You also had a chance to work some of the heavyweights in the industry at the time. Babyface, Diane Warren, and David Foster. What do you recall about recording the songs, One Good Reason, and What I Do With The Love? I remember that a lot of, like, just going to my industry executive side, a lot of times people don't understand that to get the money that people would justify for doing stuff, you have to do these exclusive deals. So at the time of us doing the second album, David Foster had an exclusive deal with Warner Brothers where he couldn't produce records outside of Warner Brothers. And what happened was Don Warren came to the studio one day while we were recording. She came with her what would look to most people like the bag that she could buy from the grocery store when you want to keep using it, full of gas and cassette tapes. And Don Warren is one of the greatest hustlers that I know in the music business because if she wants to work with you, she's coming to the studio and she's not going to stop playing records until you pick one. So we gravitated towards those two records. I won't say necessarily thinking that David Foster was going to produce them, but knowing that he was a part of it. So when we found out about the deal, basically I had the opportunity to oversee David Warren's production. I mean, David Foster's production. So that became like one of the first pinnacles parts in my life because we, me and Don Warren became real cool. She sat in for the whole studio session for beauty. And I remember after we had done the album, I had gone to one of the BMI awards shows and, um, I saw David Foster. He was like, Nokia, that production that you did on my song, it was impeccable. I'm paraphrasing or whatever, but he was, he was so happy uh, about the way that the song turned out that it kind of gave me that little bit of ego that we can get as artists and producers that's not false. It really comes from being able to have a dream or something that you want to do and then have somebody that's such, I mean, David Foster is like Chicago, Michael Jackson. I mean, like you can, you can go on and on. And to have him be excited about something that I did and I'm still young as shit, for real, it was just yeah. like, it helped that foundation of just who I became. So you got to talk about beauty, bro. Classic song for many, many single guys trying to, you know, pursue a young lady. I got to know two things about beauty that have bothered me for damn near 21 years. All right, number one, why wasn't there a video for beauty release? And on the remix, Case is on the remix. But where is Case actually singing it on the remix? I've been trying to figure out where he's singing at. I'm going to give you, all right, so I'll give you multiple things about that. So to just be honest in the times that we are, it came down to us being with Kevin Lyles and Kevin Lyles asked, are we going to shoot this video to beauty or is everybody going to do their solo stuff? And the rank and file majority decided that they wanted to do their solo stuff on the song that Hype Williams was going to shoot the video for. And I'm going to tell you what's so crazy about it. 
the video that ended up being Aaliyah's Rock the Boat or Underwater yeah. and everything was supposed to be the video for Beauty. My daughter, wow. my, my sorry, not my daughter, sorry, I didn't say. My oldest son's mother used to run the video department at Death Cam. So I actually got to see the treatment that he sent about wanting to shoot the whole video underwater. That's dope. So I could go into the particulars of it, but it was just a majority consensus decision at the time that nobody wanted to do it. And, I mean, it's a hard thing, but I think that the the vindication in it came, especially since nobody wanted to do the record when I first wrote it. The vindication came when I won uh, ASCAP Song of the Year, R&B Song of the Year Award for a song that had no record company money put behind it. That that and and for people that call me asshole, whatever it is. I would absolutely say that that song is one of the reasons of that foundation because it's the one song that to this day shuts everything down as soon as it comes on. And there was no hush money, payola money, nothing went behind that. That record became what it did absolutely because of the people. They pulled that record off of that album with everything that we had on it. They pulled that record off of that album and made it a uh, classic. So you just really for a loop when you're saying the guys don't want to record that joint. So, all right. So hypothetically, the guys want to record the song and somebody else approaches you. Is there another artist that you would have gave it to? No. Back in that time? So, so let's, let's get a full story. What happened was I started writing Beauty while I was working with Montel George. And I did two songs from Montel Jordan with Shep, one of which ended up being becoming What Are We Going to Do on the end of the Drew album, which was, it was a Montel Jordan song. I sang the hook, and Montel had done all the verses, but he didn't use the song, so I ended up being able to get it on the album. And I initially wrote Beauty. I, when I started writing Beauty, and I started writing it during the Montel Jordan session. I started writing it for Kate. So what ended up happening was when we went and did the remix, you can't you can't really pick out where Kate sang on it because we all kind of sing alike. But Kate sang on the hook, and then when you had that beauty, beauty part come, that's all Kate by itself. So I kind of had to just figure out the parts that were going to keep the song the way that it was because I was doing it at the time for the Best Man soundtrack. So I was like, how do you take around, how do you do the song, not take away from what people were were used to and what people loved about the record, but give my man credit for being on the record because he was the person that I initially wrote the record for. Do you know the... um exact moment where it plays in the best man i don't I mean, remember you know, exactly the beauty remix yeah. i want to say it's somewhere in that part where they were kind of like all in the house together and it's like a kitchen scene and some other shit or whatever i can't remember exactly but it's somewhere around there where where the movie played and you know shout out to everybody over at sony columbia and everything my man oh at the time 
um, my man Terry, and, and a lot of people who just believed in me at the time. To and they gave me a lot of work. Like from by me doing the best man, I ended up being able to be part of the Blue Street soundtrack and do yeah. Rough End's first single and do Not I Be Like for Foxy Brown. So that that was another one of those moments where it was a pivotal part in my career as far as as far as transitioning to from somebody that people just knew as a part of a group to doing things that made people go back and look at the other stuff and be like, oh well, hold up. He wasn't just singing in the background for real. This motherfucker was in here really making these records. So, you know, it was a, it was, it was it was a great time for me. Let's get into the tip hop shit. So turn of twenty first century, you're making noise once again. You start dabbling hip hop a little bit. Two of my joints are of course, y'all don't want it with Capone Noriega and DMX on what these bitches want. How was the experience working with Capone and Nori on the reunion album and working with X on what these bitches want? All right, well, both of them honestly and it's funny because I was kind of having a conversation with somebody earlier. I was like, it's a whole generation of people that had to, of people that had to learn I was in Drewville because they knew me as a hip-hop producer. The greatest thing about doing the song with Capone, Capone and Noriega was that I got to do one of the first records that they did when Capone came home from jail. And that was their first, that was that, you know, the first album that, that was the reunion album. So I got to do one of the first records with them coming out of R&B that they did for that album. And everybody, everybody was shocked that I did that record along with my man Fame, who was um, a producer that worked with me at the time. Like, it was like, what? But as people got, like I tell people all the time, people got, if you get in the car with me, all I play is we gonna tie everybody up, we selling these drugs, we kill everybody. Like that that's what I listen to. That's yeah, you know, I listen to hip hop and rap and that hardcore era that we came from way more than I listen to R and B. You wouldn't even believe I would be able to make the records that I do with the music that I listen to. I've never been the person that sang a whole lot. I've never been the person that listened to just R&B all day long and going, certainly I want to listen to the hip-hop that I grew up with. So not being able to necessarily do that with the group because my thought with the group was always, you know, and people got to see it, like, we're going to make these proper R&B albums. They got one or two hip-hop records, but when we do these, rec- these remixes, we're going all the way in. So, so to be able to explore that um, realm full on as a producer and be able to do it and make come right out of beauty and I would say Wild Wild West at the time and go right into making back to back, well, three pretty much classic hip hop records because you had the Capone Noriega record that blew up. You had the DMX record that blew up, and I also got to see the um, Nana Be Like with Foxy Brown from the Broken Silence album that ended up getting nominated for a Grammy over my band Fame. And just to make that transition and to come right out the gate with records that, as far as R&B would be concerned, are standard, kind of like in what people play. It, 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 was a real, it was a real big thing for me. 
and to this day to be recognized for that, like when the DMX challenge came up and you know, other things, it's like, I really just, um, I, I was blessed to be able to explore my creativity as opposed to being put in a box because of, you know, what the foundation was or what I was able to introduce to people. Wasn't your original solo album going to be hip hop? Very hip hop yeah. oriented. Yeah, and I still got that one waiting. Oh, I just well, ain't released it yet. You released it, you know. Yeah. You ever released a joint, brother? Whether it's on vinyl or iTunes or that, <laughs> you gotta stand it. No, it's coming. No, it's coming. Like I was, I was able last year to revisit a lot of stuff and um, work with some dope producers. Like right now, honestly, I have a um, project. And I'm working on with my man Jimmy Kendrick from New York, who produced Jay Z. I did it my way and countless records when he was producing with Murder Inc. I got another project that I'm working on with Dane Grease, who bought us X for real. So I never moved too far away. Like I always tell people, I do R&B, but my. All right, so we were talking about uh, hip hop and what else you worked with. So let's get back into that. Yeah, no, it was just that you know being able like. The hip-hop records that I did, it gave me a chance to explore the foundation that was bred the R&B that I made, you know, because I've never been a big person as far as, like, listening to R&B. Like, I love D'Angelo and Babyface and everything, but, like, if you get in the car with me, it's all late 80s. Early 90s, we on Southern Drugs, top, everybody, family, and whatever else. So, you know, it was always, I guess, weird to people how I was able to make R&B when I didn't necessarily listen to it as much as I did everything else. But R&B for me was therapy before I had a therapist. It was, it was something that allowed me to express my deepest emotions and just be able to let it go. And like I always say that human emotion is something that will never get old. So once you connect to it, it's not, it's nothing nobody can do. Don't matter what the genre is or whatever, when you can, can connect to things that make people remember times in their life or people that they know or things that they've been through, that's when you're able to create those records that become classic. It don't matter the sound or whatever else. It's, it's human emotion. And what can I take from what you're saying that reminds me of something that I know? Fully agree. That, that was one of the great things about being a DJ when I was serving in the Air Force overseas. I'm old school to my heart. So right. I be DJing and, and I might throw on like something from Kane's Long Live the Kane album. And mm-hmm. I would have you know, someone a bit older than me approach me and able to tell me, you know what, brother? Thank you for playing that, man. That, that took me back to hanging out with my brother mm-hmm. at a place shop in NY. Or, you know, I might play something from Truth. And a couple of the folks me, you know what, brother? Thank you for playing it. You know, that was our wedding song back in 1990. So it's, it's just... Ah, man, man. People, Truth, in my honest opinion, they get left out of so much of the conversation of... Yep what we all are as far as like, because truth, obviously, 
they didn't they didn't come out of the Teddy Riley New Jack Swing quote unquote camp like a Keith Sweat or somebody like that. But people don't know that they were the the early Dallas Austin protégés. They don't know that before all the work that he did with Michael Bivens and ABC, BBD, the East Coast family, and TLC and everybody, like he did, he did that remake of All I Do Is Think Of You. And I mean, spread spread my wings alone from truth. It's one of the greatest R&B songs ever made in life, in my opinion. And from I'm the video to the choreography. And Chucky Booker, I mean, like, Chuck, with his solo stuff and the stuff that he produced. It's so many people. Kyle West, you know, there's so many people that don't get mentioned as much as they should be for the foundation of, I'm still, to this day, I'm still down to do a record with Kyle West. Like, to this day, because Al B. Shaw and Kyle West were the first people that I, were a- that I was able to go into the studio. I was able to go in the studio when Kyle West and Al B. Shaw were working on Jodeci stuff. And I was also able to be in the same studio building where Devontae was working on the Horace Brown album that nobody knows about. The real Horace Brown first album. Not the one that came out. But the one that they bootlegged on top of Mary J. Blige's album and sent out there and sold. So to be a part of not just the era as far as my age, but to be able to say that I was in the studio with the equipment that they was using. I was in there breaking stuff. And it would be like, oh, you can't touch nothing no more. It's a whole it's a it's a whole other thing when it comes to R and B with me. Because of course Jodeci and Boys and Men, they were the foundation. Yeah. So to be able to be around so many people that were a part of that whole thing and, and be able to see part of that process, like I, I never I never forget or lose any of those experiences in my life. No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about giving folks their flowers when they're here. And there's so many producers whose name that we don't put respect on and give them their flowers while they're here. That's primarily why I started my podcast was to give flowers to people who may have forgot about it. You know, we don't give them an effect like yourself, the names you just mentioned and the information's out there. You just got to look for it. So with your production, brother, was there any hip hop artists that you turned out a chance to work with when you were really hitting back in like that 99 to like 2003 era? I had to... I had to turn down a lot of projects in the name of Drew Hill. And I just believe it at that. Respect. respect. Because I helped break Eve. I helped break a lot of people. Like me and my man Fame produced, you know, the Cat One record that was the first hip hop artist that was signed to death. I mean, signed to Motown. So it's like, it's, I don't really get into it a lot because it's just what it was at the time, but I had to not do a lot of stuff in the name of keeping the group going. Because after I did the Capone Noriega and the DMX joint, it wasn't nobody that didn't want to work with me. So, and a lot of people, 
lot of times you don't, we don't really, this isn't the era that deals with loyalty a lot. Yeah. But loyalty will, I remember I was on Jack Thriller's show and he asked me a question and I was like, when you're on the team, a lot of times you're doing something that you don't want to do because you believe in your team. So it was a lot of times where opportunities came where I had to just respectively, respectively decline because I needed to make sure that my group kept going. So with the group, you guys reunited in 2002 with the Drew World Order Project. You sang lead on Men Always Regret, and she said, I always felt the label dropped the ball with the album and the entire Drew World concept the group was going for. Personally, how did you envision the Drew World, the Drew World Order concept actually playing out? Well, I, I tell you, because nobody's ever asked me this, my vision was I told everybody in the group to go get a deal with every label that was around right there. And then we were all signing each other as artists. And by the time everybody figured everything out, we'd have been paid. But as most people would figure out, the focus centered around Cisco and I. So that concept got lost in the other members feeling like they, even with something like that happening, they still might not be able to get the shine that they were looking for. So it was like, once we got the deals, it just turned into this big thing of let me prove what I could do as opposed to dealing with what made sense with the amount of influence and power that we had at the time. And that's the reason why people weren't able to see four full strong albums from the group because we were always like a well-oiled machine. Everybody was great at what they did, but we moved into a place where everybody wanted to prove something. So you couldn't really prove something that nobody knew you for doing. So it's kind of like the only people that made it out of that space were me and Cisco, which wasn't a plan. But you have to, it's like early on when I realized that the focus was Cisco, I said, okay, I'm going to be one of the sexiest motherfuckers ever sang background on life. And meanwhile, I'm going to go produce and write these records because I've spent so much time doing this. I want to garner a certain type of attention, even though I'm not like a person that's just like that. Like, I need you to be in my face and I want to be in everybody's face and whatever. But the work had to match the effort and what came out of it. But for the other guys, it became a point of contention because they didn't have, like I said, I spent time in the industry before I had to deal. So it was certain, certain knowledge of things that everybody else didn't have. It's kind of like coming to the business and you're happy to be here. And you want to think that everybody is nice and whatever, and that's not what this is. So if you live within that space, there's certain things that aren't going to happen. Everybody will love you, but this business ain't built on being nice. This business is built off of proving that you know what you're doing. And then even when you do that, it's like my man Jojo Brim always told me, 
Def Jam. We was like, no, Kel, you got to do it a hundred times for people to think that you know what you're doing. And then you got to do it a thousand times after that for them to believe you know what you're doing. So when that frustration came in, for me, it was always about, let me push harder. Where a lot of times for other people, it became a defeating thing. So it was just kind of like, oh, well, whatever. And turned into a thing of where when they would ask us our opinions on stuff, of course, me and Cisco, the first people in there, like, all right, all right, whatever. And Woody and Jazz would kind of be like, well, I'm cool with whatever is going on. And after a while, as we all know, any business that you do, if you ask your opinion and you always say you don't care, after a while, nobody's going to ask you your opinion. Nobody's going to care about what you think about what's going on because they think at that point that you just cool with whatever happens. So then when you have the covert hostility after that, because it's not that, nobody understands covert hostility until you get older. So you just look like you don't care. So I'm going to skip past you because you seem like you're cool, which turns into another thing because then you're sitting back like, I'm not really cool, but I don't know how to say I'm not cool without feeling like somebody's going to look at me like I'm a bad person. When nobody's going to look at you as a bad person if you bring you an opinion. So, you know, it was just, it's a lot of stuff that happens when you're young. And the, and the group dynamic, just as a general thing, is one of the hardest things to deal with. Because either you are on the same page as a group, or, well, Better yet than that. You're all on the same page of what you want to achieve as a team. But that doesn't, a team, that's the reason why I like it's the difference between a team and a group. Say it's a basketball group. You say it's a basketball team. Because the team, no matter what everybody wants to do individually, it's always working towards a common goal. With a group, you can work towards a common goal, but your common, every goal is specific for each person. So I'm just going to use whatever it is that's around me in order to get the place, get to the place that I want to be, as opposed to using everything that's around you to get to a place that's going to raise everybody else up, and then I could do what I want to do. So you know, it, it, that's why groups don't last like that. I mean, it's a very hard thing to do. At, in the best of situations, it's a hard thing to do. And... That's why, you know, like a lot of times you don't see female groups lasting because if you got this hardcore business thing that's at the foundation and then you bring in the emotion, whoever going to get some shit done? There's always going to be a fight. There's always going to be a thing about attention or I don't feel like I'm being heard or whatever else. But the flip side of that is what is the work that you're doing? Because you're not going to be heard if you don't say nothing and you're not going to be seen if you don't do nothing. So. It's, it's a very, very delicate thing. I don't, and, and I'm not saying any of this, saying that anybody was faulting in what they did. It's what you learned and what you decide to do. If you decide to be a human being within this business, you're going to fuck up a lot of times because this business ain't built on being a human being and have emotions and shit like that. You got to leave that shit out of there. So when you operate from that space, and then you realize that it's not like that. For some people, it shut them down. For some people, it make them go harder. And nobody's wrong for what they do based on what they know. It's just something that if you want to keep doing it, 
you learn after a while that this shit operates at a certain pace and at a certain level. And no matter how much of a good Samaritan you are or anything else, you're not going to change the rules of this business. You're going to carve your way within it or you're going to work within the system. And that's it. You give me jewels, brother. I mean, even now, man, it was like a huge missed opportunity for me as a um, fan. Because, I mean, to this day, I don't think there's been anybody that was able to, from an R&B standpoint, kind of do what New Edition did. And I thought, man, Drew's going to be able to do what they did. They're going to be able to separate, do solo acts, come back together as a group and make some serious paper and have that solidifying legacy for R&B. Because for me as a fan, I kind of I understood that Nokio's hip-hop, Cisco can cater that pop audience. Jazz can be urban, adult, temporary. Woody can do his gospel thing. And they're bringing in different fan bases to one common goal. Like, I saw what you guys were going for. I just, you know, didn't wish it would have worked out. I'm going to tell you what the thing is, though. I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to tell you why, as of now, and probably the only other people that would be able to do it is boys and men. Everybody that was involved in No Edition's success was involved in all their individual successes. Yeah. So it was like, we're going to take the same blueprint, we're going to mold it to what each of you want to do, and it's going to work. They're the only group, that their whole group, whether it was motherfucking Bobby Brown got platinum, Ralph Tresman got platinum. Johnny Gill got platinum. BBD got platinum. Nothing below it. I mean, they might have had it after the fact, but they all their initials, they all got platinum albums, and they all came from the same place. And that yep. was because it was a certain blueprint. Shout out to my man Marvin, Brooke Payne, and everybody else. It was a certain blueprint that even though they weren't able to deal with each other, that same blueprint was used across the board to make everybody famous. So BBD yeah. can go do a show. No addition to do a show. Bobby Brown could do a show. Kids the State can do a show. Johnny Gill can do a show. Nobody's saying shit because they stuck to the formula that works. When you get outside of the formula that works, you're going to lose in this business unless you got shitload of money. Unfortunately. Like I was, so did- I, I've been talking, I've been talking to people because everybody's been talking about these verses, and I'm like, man, it needs to be 91 to 95. All the groups, the boys and men, Joe, to see Silk, Shout, and then we do 96 to 2000 will be us, Jagged Edge, 112 or whatever, and it's like you will have boys and men as the super bosses of the first group of people. And you would have us as the super bosses like we were playing the video game with the, the second generation. And then everybody else would fall, whatever. And then we do a bit like, a, you know, like when you're doing your NCAA bracket, for real. Because there's certain people, like, you can't compete with no addition. How do you do that? You can't. They went from Brooke Payne and them to Puffy. They had hit records across it, but how do you do that? Yeah, you can't. It's too much music. Quiet as it's kept, you were the A&R for Trey Song's second album. What advice can you offer to someone pursuing A&R in 2020 in the digital and streaming age? Man, keep it to the music, man. I mean, like, 
knowing the trends and knowing what's going on is, is, is good as far as dealing with corporate people and turning what I call like notes into numbers. But as a core thing, you got to keep it to the music and you have to be artist friendly, which means that you can't take the label is always going to take the path of what's going to make money. And there's nothing wrong with that because it's a corporation. But when you're trying to give artists a chance to carve their space out within what we do, you have to be able to advocate for them within the space that we got to live in. So you can't just leave them every time they got an, an idea or whatever comes up. You can't just say, well, I'm going with the label because they're paying me. Because at the end of the day, the artist is creating something that's going to get everybody paid. So you got to figure out a you got to figure out a balance. Like you got to stick with what you know, especially if you're coming into it like I did, as far as being like an independent contractor. But you gotta you have to find that balance between not getting caught up in the industry and doing what everybody does, and still being an executive that respects what that is, but knowing that the artist is the one that dictates dictate shit at the end of the day. All these records, are, you can sell millions of albums. When that artist comes in, they got that shit. You got to know how to balance that shit. You got to let them feel available to be who they are, along with reeling them back, along with being able to talk to the label and the lingo that won't have them looking at you like you're a crazy-ass artist. It's a very hard thing. That's why I was very, as I say, it was like me, me and RL were probably two of the first artists that still got pulled into doing corporate shit while we were still artists. Now you got us all, Raheem Devon, shout out to him. They got a job being, and you had Neo that came in doing it. But it was a, it was a thing that, because most record company people look at artists like we're crazy. So it's like, because money and creativity don't equal up, the artist is going to talk about what they want. That's going to equal up to a ridiculous amount of money. The corporate person is going to try to figure out how to do that same shit, which ain't going to be that same shit, but make, make the record company money and save the record company money. So it's a delicate balance between all that shit. It's like you have to stick true to what you know and what you believe and the reason why they brought you in. But at the same time, you can't dismiss or dispel the foundation of what this label shit is. Because the minute that you do that, it's the minute that you want to be on the outside of everything. Yeah, perfect answer, folks. For anybody that comes to A&R, take it from Nokia. He's been in shit for a minute. So we mentioned the, the hip-hop. We mentioned the R&B. Let's get into this rock stuff really quick. So creatively, where were you when you started the Black Angel Down rock band? Well, what happened was I used to manage a band called the Mind Factory here in Maryland. And that's how I started out really with rock music. Child and my man, Coop Dog, who introduced me to him. And from there, it was like the, um, a few years went past. They kind of like disbanded, but not. And then, unfortunately, the lead singer of the band passed away 
And the other guys in the band, specifically my man Kevin, who plays bass, who's also my business partner in Black Name You Down, he's kind of like, man, you ever think about singing lead in a rock band? And I was like, yes. And he always tells the story of how I'm always, I'm great at the Jedi mind trick, which is making you believe you came up with the idea, but I've been secretly feeding you the idea forever. So we um we just decided to to, to, to go at it. And fortunately, through a lot of people here in Maryland and other places, I, I, we, I, my thought in the beginning was, as opposed to me being somebody that could call whoever and just kind of whatever, it's like I want to perform at every place. I want to do everything that anybody that ever became a famous rock star had to do. So fortunately to see that, we got to play the major venues here in Baltimore and Maryland. We got to play Viper Vermin in L.A. and the major places right there on the strip. We got to do the Mercury Worm in New York and the Bitter End and stuff like that. I'm always about, I want to do what it is that you do for real. I don't want the hype. I don't want to be placed somewhere for somebody to be able to question what I do. I want them to be able to look at what I do and say that I did it from the beginning. So South by Southwest, West, doing that two, three years in a row, we, I really got a chance along with the band to do the things that you do to create that paper trail of, okay, like this is for real. Not taking away any anything from anybody else that's ever tried to move genres, but it's easy to do it when you're famous sometimes because you just find somebody that's going to say that you know what you're doing. But I wanted to be a person that the people could say, oh, no, I saw that, and it's for real. So uh, I like to take the road less traveled. Yourself, Woody, Cal, and Jazz no longer in Drew Hill. The way I see it is, home members are all just on their own journey right now. Right now, two of Nokio's projects, while we are going, parts one and two are available for streaming. Just a quick side note, folks, grab a pen so I can tell you what to you know, check out. Note my personal favorite, if you like his R&B stuff. The single, An Apology. The single "Hey" and "We Are Loving" is all available on iTunes and all platforms. Temporary love is that shit too, but I want to get into his rock stuff while we're going crazy. Parts one and parts two. So if you like his rock stuff, check that check that out. But you mind just giving us a little bit of the background on the rock product you recently did, the "While We Are Going Crazy" parts one and parts two? Oh man, that stuff. I started working on that stuff around 2012. And it was kind of like stuff that I did in between figuring out at times what we want to do about Drew Hill albums and stuff, but I never released it. So when Black History Month came this year, it was just kind of like, I like to do stuff that's mocked in time, regardless of what it does. Like I, I like I like to do stuff that's mocked within certain time periods. So not knowing what was going on, having a lot of stuff going on with the group, I just wanted to show people honestly that if you ever wondered if us not doing the album had to do with 
being music that wasn't there, it's never been the case. Because some of those songs were supposed to be Drew Hill songs. I mean, I won't say which one, but, and I mean, like, I had the versions of them with Drew Hill on them. So it was kind of like, as I was going through what I was going through with the group and seeing that they had made the decision to still try to release a single, without me being there, I wanted people to know that it's not a thing of not trying to do whatever. It's just that we not agreeing, and I I want people to go hear this music. Like, I always tell young guys, I'm like, if you really want to get into this thing independently and you make music, all it takes is one song. But that don't mean you just put out one song. You put out everything you got because that one song is going to make people go back and listen to everything you had. Once they connect with that song, they want to know what you got. So you don't want to have to catch up. You want to already have it there. We, as bad as the business has been for record sales, it has also been a great opening for people who just know how to consistently make music. You can build a fan base that's insulated. Just knowing how to be consistent and knowing how to release music. It's like even now, like the stuff that I got coming now, the my my next project, one twenty one AM part one through three. It was just like something that I came up with in the middle of doing something else. And I had to start figuring like, all right, man, what I'm gonna do because the studio was shutting down. So not only like I mixed an apology myself. I got my my boy Chauncey in Baltimore to master it. And then once I got got him to do that, I was like, well, man, now that I'm back to mixing, I need to get back to mastering. So this next stuff, I'm recorded, mixed, and mastered all by myself. So, so it's like, it's just a, it's a, it's a small challenge. But at the same, along with that, it's just, I've worked so hard to get to a point where I felt like I could be consistent making music, but I didn't want to let any of the stuff that's going on keep me from being able to make anything for the people that gravitate towards what I do. It don't matter if Drew Hill, hip-hop, whatever. It's like I know that there's certain people, whether it's them listening to my production or them listening to stories that I talk about about the songs, there's people that gravitate towards what I do and it helps them move forward. So I don't want to, since I'm not in a position where I had to worry about a label or somebody else, it's like, I can just make the music. I got 40 songs from 2008 of Drew Hill that never got released, for real. Man. I got music forever. Yeah. So I don't want to be the person, because I was in the system, I learned how to be out of the system. So I learned, I didn't want to be the person that gets stuck in the fact that because I don't have this quote-unquote system around me, I can't do certain stuff because that would that would hurt me because music saved my life. Me being able to create, that was my first therapist. That was my first psychiatrist. That was my first doctor, life coach, whatever else it was. Like That was what taught me to be able to release things and just put them into the universe and let them go and keep on moving with life without holding on to stuff. So it's like when I'm not making music, I don't feel alive. So I can't be connected to something that causes me to be able to create. But then I got to sit and I got to wait for you to come up with the marketing 
the marketing plan is already made a bunch of hit records. So yes, sir. the only thing I'm doing at that point is I'm paying for you to see them now or I'm paying for you to figure them out later. It's not going to make a difference. We, I mean, that, that first week sales shit, that shit been there. The, the, I need to do this this week. That's for people that need to keep on paying the car note stuff like that. <laughs> it's like, if you really make music, you're willing to do it for free. It's so and, and I'm sure you know, just like I know, anybody to be listening to this. Plenty of people that's more talented than anybody that's supposed to be whoever they are. But they chose to make music because they love it and stay away from the industry. Yep. They chose to do music, whether it was like you're saying, with DJing, what they chose the fact that they love music and didn't want it to be tainted by what happens in this industry. And people would come to them all day, oh man, you can make all the money. I don't want to do that. I'd rather go to work or whatever it is that I do as my foundation to make money and still be able to make music that I love and have people, whoever gravitates towards it, that's a plus to me. It's like I tell people about my online stuff. I could do all the stuff to have all the followers or whatever, but I feel like the people that follow me are there for me, as opposed to being nosy and just coming through to see what's going on or whatever. I feel like I, I'm building my people. If that take me 10 years, guess what? In 10 years, going to make a difference to my kids and their kids and everybody else is going to benefit from my catalog. So why should I stop making music? Because I need to worry about somebody coming up with a marketing plan for what I should already know after doing it for damn near 30 years. It don't make sense to me. I understand the height. I understand being in position. But as we've seen a million times, you can get, still get put in position and not sell shit. So what is that position for real? You know what I'm saying? Like, what what is the position that you're working towards if you still end up in the same place? True. If I can make the music and I can have the people that love my music Keep loving my music. Real shit, bro. And yeah, I kind of want to piggyback on what you said earlier There's about no being, not following trends and just being out there. And that's why uh-huh. I that out there. You know, this question no, was really. yourself, jokes and all that about what you guys are doing. Like, I'm going to support it. Like, right, sorry, I had, I had, I had, the, I had mixes playing in the background in the house. I had to run in the house real quick. Yeah, so, I mean, but, it's all love, man. I'm like, keep doing what you do, bro. And I make it a habit to always go on iTunes. If, if, if you don't post something on social media, I make it a habit to go on iTunes. I'll type in Nokia. I'll type in, you know, Nokia Lynn City. I'll type in anybody from Drew Hill that I rock with just to see if they drop something new. And I'll you know, give you a buck 99, a little 129 for a single because I'm a music fan like yourself. And it's all about supporting the artist. So whatever Cisco, Black, and Smokey are doing is Drew Hill. They're doing that. Just let them do that. Nokia, Woody, Sal, Jazz got their own thing going on. And when they decide to go back to Drew Hill, if they decide to go back to Drew Hill, so be it. And so then, support them. You know, give give these brothers a chance to show you. Yeah, their no, I mean, I think that every, like it's it. All of us with the smoking black coming to group. All of us have been doing this for a long time. All of Thank us you. have hit records. You don't have to like the configuration or whatever the fuck it is, but you can't deny the, you can't deny two things. All of us have not only made hit records for ourselves, we made them for other people, and we can sing our asses off. So you yeah. can figure out whatever it is that you want to figure out in between that, and it's fair. 
Nobody is looking at you like you're wrong. None of that shit. It's just that's what it is. Like, if our mission, even with, and not even to touch on it, like, even with what I've been going through with the group right now, I don't, I'm the first person to defend what people say against me not being there. Uh-huh. even over the group sometimes because I was the first person to say that this motherfucking Drew Hill will go on and I will shut this bitch down and go find some whole new niggas. Drew Hill, like, I always looked at Drew Hill like I want this legacy contract like the Temptations got. It don't matter who alive, who in the group, whatever it is, it's always going to be a temptation. Real talk. Straight enough face, just the way I like to like to hear my interviews. So before we close out, I got to ask about the Drew Hill bio, but just a quick little um, preference. So ideally, mm-hmm. who would like to see you, who would like to see portray you in the Drew Hill biopic? Mac Wiles. I can see it. I would like Mac Wiles to play Nokia. All right, folks. I'm gonna tell you guys once again. We've had Nokia on the line, and I highly, highly urge you guys to check out some of Nokia solo stuff. It, it's good music, R&B, rap, whatever you want to hear. Rock, Nokio has something for you outside of the Drew Hill stuff. So give the give the brother a chance, check it out. And I like it. And I highly recommend it stuff, especially the song Temporary Love. Is there anything you'd like to add? Working fans find you on social media. Nokia Nokia is coming. I'm under my real name on Facebook. Uh Nokio the entity on Twitter and I ain't really figured out Snapchat and all the rest of that stuff. It, it, it kind of irritates my anxiety. It's, it's too much going on. I don't want to post everything that I do from the time I wake up in the morning until when I go to sleep at night. I ain't figured out how to post all my food yet and everything I cook and all that stuff that people do. they taking up their nose or whatever it is that be going on. Kill <laughs> <laughs> you. All right, bro. I want to thank you for coming, stopping by, man, to tell your truth, tell your testimony, give your story. You um gave me some motivation just on everything you spoke on, so I appreciate that. So once again, yeah, folks, man, I, I'm gonna I appreciate music, you, man. And I'm gonna leave you guys with a quote to just Nokia inspire me with my own podcast and everything else. And is we all have dreams, but in order to make dreams come into reality, it takes an awful lot of determination, dedication, self discipline, and effort. Just you got to do it. Man. That's the thing. It's like you got to, if you can work yourself past the thoughts that cause you not to, then you're good. Because I tell people all the time, you have to become a great loser before you can become a great winner. Totally agree. Until if you don't know time, how to lose, you'll never even know when it is. Oh, yeah. It's Until the next time, done out. Yes, sir. Hey, young world, the world is yours. What's up? This is your man, Nutter Butter, and you are in the mix with my man, Derek, of Reviews and Duns. Exclusive interviews, exclusive interviews, exclusive interviews of your favorite R&B and hip-hop artists, producers, and songwriters. Stay tuned, you dig.